My name is Dustin Kelly, but everybody calls me DJ. I'm prior army, serving as both a Ford observer and a military police officer. I spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. One more thing to push. Here we go. All right, now we're ready. In three, two, one, and we're live. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the DTD Podcast. This week in the studio, my guest makes a returning appearance. You first met this guest when the story of codename Johnny Walker was told. I thought that we needed to know a little more about this guy and his amazing career, which has spanned multiple deployments with SEAL Team 3, Naval Special Warfare Development Group. He was an instructor at the Naval Special Warfare Center, the senior enlisted advisor to SEAL Team 7, and Master Chief Petty Officer of BUDS First Phase. He spent a decade in executive leadership positions throughout Naval Special Warfare. The top position he served was Command Master Chief at the Naval Special Warfare Group 1. He has a Bachelor's of Science in Administration and Management and a Master's of Science in Management. And even with all these things, my guest says his crowning achievement was to remain happily married for 24 years to his wife and being a father to his two children. I'm honored that he would join me in the studio again. Please welcome Jason Tushin. What's up, man? What's going on? How you doing? Man, I'm so glad you're back so we can talk. Uh... Uh, we, we had a little bit of Wi-Fi problem last time, uh, you were in the woods. So, uh, for your show, I had to block out your face and just put a picture of you because, uh, if people would have saw it, they would have thought you were uh, possessed or something. Cause you were just yeah, all over the screen. Favor. I'd probably <laughs> do that again this time too, man. But you know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. So you're back and we've got a lot to talk about. The reason I brought you back, because I told you after that, we need to talk more about your career. That was a very important part of it with Codename Johnny Walker. But there was so much more. You were in the military in different parts of, I, I say there's different phases of the military. You were in uh, very end of the Cold War. Uh, you were in before 9-11 and then you were in for the GWAT. So you saw about three different kinds of military that we need to talk about. But we always do it by going back to the very beginning. Let's talk about it. Born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, raised there. You said from day one it was craziness. So let's go. Yeah. So uh, I was adopted, and uh, my parent my parents never kept that a secret from me. Like as soon as I can remember, I've known my whole life that I was adopted, and uh, you know they they were very transparent with it. Uh, I mean, I won the lottery with them adopting me for sure. And, uh, you know, so they, uh, they were very candid, like, Hey, yeah, you're adopted. You know, we picked you. I'm like, fuck, cool, man. And, uh, but so they, and the story was, it was, you know, two teenagers, uh, had a kid, didn't want to, you know, it was too much of a struggle to raise them. They didn't want to have an abortion. So, uh, they put me up for adoption. So, which, okay, cool. Uh, fast forward, you know, to about two, three years ago, uh, just kind of randomly through 23 and me, I was, uh, 
I got on there to try to track down. Well, one, there was a morbid curiosity to, or just a curiosity to find out, see, you know, if I could find, you know, my biological parents or any, anything to, you know, fill in blanks. Uh, but really like the medical history, I was curious about that. Right. You know, am I going to drop that of a heart attack in my forties, which <laughs> found out there's high potential of that, but oh, luckily that, I made it. Well, that's good. Uh, and, uh, you know, I was sitting at work one day and I logged into 23 me on my lunch break and these initials pop up and it says probability half sister. I'm like, Holy shit. So I, uh, wrote a message, you know, saying who I was with the situation and, uh, couldn't sleep that night. The next day I, uh, logged in and, uh, you know, it said probably there's another set of initials on there on the profile and said probability mother or, you know, mother. I'm like, Holy fuck. So, uh, yeah, sent a message out to her explaining my, the story as my parents told me. And, uh, she filled in the gaps. It was, you know, Hey, you know, me and, uh, you, you know, your biological father, we, you know, entertained the idea of trying to raise you, but you would have been, uh, it would have been a struggle. Uh, you, you know, you would have had, it would have been a rough upbringing, not, not, in, not in terms of, uh, physical or, you know, any, anything mental, emotional, it's just that, uh, it would have been a challenge financially, uh, cause they're young and they weren't from, uh, robust means if you will uh and so like wow cool you know like i i completely like i remember talking to her right after that going damn like you made such a mature decision at such a young age at 17 you know and he did too because he was he was part and parcel with it turns out uh his younger brother was a 10th group green beret that i deployed to iraq with oh <laughs> so wow yeah that, that's even crazier too like yeah really? Where you were here, where, where were you? When? Oh shit. Yeah. Good. I guess I was your nephew over here, but, uh, no, it, it, it's like, uh, you couldn't like script a better story. Right. Like I, like I, like I said, I won the lottery by being adopted by my mom and dad. And then it's cool that I got to meet my biological parents and, and they're great people too. You know, like, wow, there's no, like, there's no quota on how many people you can love in life. Or who can right. love you? So it was, uh, yeah, it was really cool, man. It's uh, just you know, but it's just part of the story. <laughs> well, what's interesting to me when you talk about that stuff, though, is that usually that's not the way it ends up. Whenever people find people, it, it usually doesn't end that way. Where it's you know, you made a mature decision. Mostly, it was a selfish decision, or it was some other reason why they did something. Um, yeah. And, and all around, you said you hit the lottery with your parents. Um, do you think that's partly your mind state? Because in all the times that we've talked to each other, you seem to be a pretty go with the flow kind of guy. Like, yeah, okay, cool. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it could be, but I mean, like, you know, like my mom and dad, uh, they're fantastic human beings, right? You know, they have a great work ethic. They treat others the way they want to be treated. And, uh, that's, you know, what more can you ask for? Uh, and you know, and, and so, uh, yeah, I just, I respect them. You know, I try to emulate them and then getting the opportunity to engage with my biological parents. It's, you know, the same kind of 
work ethic and treat others the way you want to be treated. I mean, it's, it's cool to see. It's very easy in this day and age to, uh, give up hope on humanity and society, but actually, yeah, be cynical. Right. Totally. And have the good fortune of really having, you know, four parents, you know, a a biological set and a, and the ones the the set that raised me, uh, be upstanding people is insane, you know? So I got, I got great DNA, uh, in terms of that aspect. And then I had an upbringing that, uh, helped us express those genes the best way possible. So it's kind of a good deal. Now, did the biological, they stayed together, so they're still together to this day? No, they never stayed together. They never got together. Okay. Married, but they're still good friends. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. So, and the, the half-sister, did that turn yeah, out cool. too? Yeah, she's great. She was, uh, she's from a, a different, uh, you know, obviously a different dad, uh, but, uh, yeah, she's cool. Yeah, she's funny as hell. Lives in Milwaukee, which is oh. funny. So, yeah. Wow. Right by my brother, actually. Oh. <laughs> They're not too far away from him, so yeah. <laughs> well, uh, it's it's crazy that you you know you told me it's crazy from day one, so it, it absolutely is. Let's talk a little about Milwaukee, though. I told you I wanted to talk to you about this. So sure. um, we're right in the Jeffrey Dahmer era when you're getting older and stuff, and you were talking to me about a club that you used to go to that oh, um, there's an uh, Eagles Club which was like, I think it was like 25th or 26th in Wisconsin, which is, uh, you know, Marquette university is over there, but it, it, it's like the, it's kind of like the Gaza strip, man. It's a rough area, uh, in that, you know, you get a couple blocks off that beaten path, man. It, it's, uh, it gets rough. And, uh, there was this great reggae place on, on 23rd and Walnut that we used to go to too, not too far from there. But, uh, yeah, you had to be careful in that neighborhood, especially part time. But, uh, no, I had Dahmer hung out. I mean, his his place was like right around the corner from that. So like, well, we're at punker shows, you know, watching the Chili Peppers back in the day or whatever. Uh, you know, he's munching on some dude's thigh bone. You know, <laughs> <laughs> What's the what? Uh, what do you think the craziest group that you saw back then uh, when Dahmer was making sandwiches out of people? Uh, what do you think's the craziest group that that kind of blew up? That blew up, that or they got good, or was like the craziest shit I've ever seen. So, like, well, I'm sure the craziest shit and the ones that blew up are completely separate answers. Yeah, so, like, uh, well, like one of the cool things, like, so my roommate's band uh, opened. So, when, when, right when I hit 18, I moved out to an apartment, and it was in another pretty rough, na- colorful, rough neighborhood. <laughs> Had a lot of character, but uh, uh, two of the roommates were in a band uh, called Wild Kingdom. And it evolved to uh, the band Citizen King, which was, oh, you know, wow. I've seen better days. So those two guys were in that band. But uh, so I would borrow my parents' truck and move their shit, their gear around, you know, to different shows. And uh, so I think it was, it was actually at the Eagles Club when the Chili Pe- they opened for the Chili Peppers. And like before the game, there was a basketball court in there. So we we're shooting some twos. And uh, Flea comes up, you know, introduced himself and, you know, I'm flea, like, yeah, no shit. And, uh, and he's like, hey, what's going on after the show? And we're like, well, fuck, I don't know. We'll go down, probably go down to the Odd Rock, which was this bunker uh, bar on the south side we used to hang out at. And uh, so, like, 
you know, all of us and then Flea and uh, John Fushanti, however you say his name, from the, the guitar player for the Chili Peppers, we all went to that bar and it was like open jam night, man. So like everybody, they all got on stage and started playing, you know, my roommates and those guys. And it was like one of the coolest things ever. Like, you know, it was before they were, they were getting big. Uh, obviously they're, you know, they're getting pretty big at that point, but you know, the, the Eagles club was still a smaller venue. Uh, it wasn't like a stadium or anything. And yeah, they wanted to hang out after the show and went to, you know, this bar that has a seating capacity or a, a capacity of 80 people, which the Milwaukee police department was well aware when 81 people were in there and show up in force with Billy clubs. But, uh, that's just Milwaukee at that point in time. Uh, but, uh, you know, they, and, uh, you get to hang out with them there and, you know, they're like normal human beings. And that, that was kind of cool to see that kind of humility. And, you know, those guys, even though they you know, had multiple albums out sticking to their roots with, uh, you know, the kids and wanting to hang out and just in, in, immerse themselves in the scene. That was kind of, that was cool. But, uh, yeah, the most disturbed show I ever saw there was, and I knew better too, man. There's this guy named Gigi Allen, just YouTube. And he's appalling. And uh, I knew better than to go on, go to that show, but it was at the Odd Rock again. And, uh, yeah, he, well, I'll just leave it at, he did some lewd stuff on stage and, uh, spent quite a few nights in the Milwaukee police department after that. But yeah. So, on so you were also in a band though. You also played. I was. Yeah. Yeah, I played uh, play guitar for a band called Intensive Care, and uh, yeah, we got that name because uh, one of us was usually in Intensive Care or the ER uh, any given weekend. I think it's you know, like you know, I remember the, our singer cracking his skull open at a, a show, stage diving, Donnie sticking a knife through his hand, I inhaled chlorine, broke up my wrist doing something stupid. You know, Mike, he was getting hurt, but, uh, it was kind of cool. Like we were just in, I think it was like our freshman year. We started entertaining the idea and it was just something to do, man. Like, you know, you can't go to bar. Well, you could in Milwaukee. They didn't really care. Half of them didn't care what age you were, but, uh, you know, who wants to go to a bar and stand around and you know, drink all night. So we needed something to do and, and we got a band equipment and started the band. And like every night we just, hop on the bus, go down to, uh, Brian's apartment, which, uh, you know, up to his attic and just jam out. And, uh, and then, you know, <laughs> we were usually imbibing pretty hard, but it was just, it was something to do. It was cool. It was, uh, semi-productive if you will. And, uh, it was fun, you know, like you just, you're a kid, man, you got all these dreams and, and, uh, just the world's a blank canvas and you're just painting your scenery onto it. And it was fun to do, man. I really enjoyed uh, that. It was, it was a good distraction for us. We played some shows, you know I mean? Donnie was a great bass player. Mikey was a great drummer. I sucked the guitar for the most part, but uh, we had fun, man. We'd play, you know, some gigs, we'd play parties. We'd just, you know, Friday night, go up to the attic and rock out and then go have fun afterwards. It was, uh, it was, it, you know, it was, it was the uh, pre-video game equivalent of, you know, online gaming, I guess. You know, it was just, it was cool, man. It's fun. 
Well, with that, you know, you graduated high school in 88 and you enlisted in 90. So that two yeah. year, that two year time gap between the two, did you know what you wanted to do? Like, cause I don't think we've ever talked about your, your actual yeah. uh, parents or anything. It, it, was there military or anything in your future? Did you have any idea? I know that you yeah. worked as a chef for Benny Hanna, I think. Yeah. The way it kind of played out was, uh, yeah, like all through high school, I was a punker and a rebel and I got along with everybody. Right. You know, but, uh, one of the, uh, this guy was a total jock, but you know, we got along good. He's like, Hey man, you want to join the Marines? And, uh, Mikey, the drummer and I had always talked about, uh, going in the Marine Corps. Right. And I, I had this, you know, I mean, I grew up with, like I said, with the cold war and, and hating the Soviets and, you know, the 1980 Olympics. And, you know, when we beat Russia, I remember that moment exactly when the U S Olympic team won the gold medal. I remember that exactly. You know, And, uh, you know, so I had this complete contempt for, uh, the Soviet union and, and communism. And, and so I, I you know, I, I felt and, and a patriotism, like I love my country. Right. I always felt everybody it should serve in some capacity. And, you know, that might be the peace corps that might be, uh, helping at the homeless shelter that might be, you know, volunteering at a school for me, like the military made the most sense. I, I gravitated towards that. And so, uh, and then I also like was not going to do this cookie cutter approach to life where you go to four years of high school and then you eagerly await to see what college you got into and then go do four more years of just like being told uh, how to think and what to do. And, uh, I like, for me, that was a, kind of appalling. Uh, of course, then, then I decided to sign up for the Marine Corps, which is the same thing, just on a different scale. But, uh, so the guys, this, this dude, my senior year in high school was like, Hey, you want to join the Marine Corps? I'm like, yeah, fuck it, man. I'm not doing anything. <clears throat> so we, we both enlisted in the Corps and, uh, we're put into that delayed entry program. And so, you know, every month we go to the Marine Corps recruiting depot or uh, center New Milwaukee and work out and learn Marine stuff and whatever else. And then, uh, you know, the summer of 88, I graduated high school and it was time to go to boot camp. And the night before boot camp, the night before I was supposed to go out or ship out, uh, just went steaming full throttle. And uh, yeah, ended up breaking my wrist or my hand you know, punching things and getting into fights and, uh, miss the, uh, bus ride or the plane ticket, you know, out to, uh, Marine Corps recruit depot in San Diego. And, uh, yeah, the Marines were like, yeah, you're not what we're looking for. So, uh, my time in the delayed entry program expired. And, uh, so I ended up, uh, and I was like, well, shit, what am I going to do now? You know, I was, everything was baked into me joining the Marine Corps for four years and, you know, then figuring life out after that. So I kept my job at, uh, I was at a, as a lifeguard. And then on the side, uh, my boss and I at the country club had a pool cleaning business where I'd clean pools for the members of the club. So I continued that on, but obviously the uh, swimming season was outdoor swimming season in Wisconsin is relatively short. So when the pool shut down for the year, I asked the manager of the country club if uh, he had a job and he, yeah, he hired me on as a janitor for four bucks an hour. 
So I was, uh, had an apartment. I was working as a janitor at a country club and uh, did that for a while. And then that was, uh, that was a shitty job. I mean, you know, literally it's just that you're cleaning shitters and, you know, sweeping the floor and just, it sucked. So that's basic training in boot camp, pretty much. Oh yeah, pretty much. Totally. (laughs) The only only plus side is, uh, my direct manager had the key to the liquor cabinet and they had some pretty high end booze there. So our apartment was well stocked, but, uh, yeah, that was, uh, I did, I, and I did that for a while with the pool cleaning business. And then I decided, okay, this sucks and I don't know what I want to do next. So I, I did go to college for a year at the university of Wisconsin, Milwaukee. And that was cool. I mean, I took classes I wanted to take that I was interested in, you know, astronomy, a uh, bunch of history classes, you know, I took a kick-ass class on uh, an anthology of the Western Great Lakes Native American Indians, which was taught by a guy who grew up on the reservation, was taught the, the old ways from the tribal elders, and that was, like, the coolest class I ever took. But even that, like, you didn't even have to put any effort in to get a C, so college bored me to tears, too. I wasn't challenged. And that's when I uh, picked up the WAN ads and found the job of Benny Hanna's, and, and that was kind of cool. That, that put me out of my comfort zone a tad. Uh, well, so you were the that. only white guy. I was. So the one in Milwaukee, I it was. I started out busting tables and washing dishes, which, I, I mean, every, every human being, every dude needs to do that job, at least at some point in their life, even if it's for two weeks, just because it sucks and you, you're just in this you know, shitty work environment. But that, I mean, that's reality. That's life. And. <laughs> My mom had a restaurant growing up at 13. I was bussing tables and washing dishes. That was my very first job. Yeah. Like the first time you get that water on your hand, like full bore, you're like, not only is it like chipping the tattoos off my skin, but it's like scalding hot, you know, just the nasty food on the plate. I mean, it just sucks, but it's good for you. (laughs) I cleaning those grease traps. Remember that shit? God damn. Yeah. And, and scrubbing the grill tops too with the charcoal Uh, bricks and stuff. Yeah. Dude, that smells like fucked up. But, uh, the, uh, yeah. And then a couple of weeks into it, they, uh, you know, Hey, bus boy, Sean, you know, we want to have American chef. I'm like, well, fuck yeah, man. Sign me up for that. So, uh, they wanted to have an American chef and they asked me to do it. And I was like, wow, this is so cool. Like it's completely, uh, I've never seen a white dude doing this. So sign me up. And I started training there and, you know, I like, I started cooking it. Uh, tables of two and four and at that one and uh, that restaurant shut down it wasn't doing a lot of business so they asked me uh, if I wanted to stay with the company I was like well yeah I'm not doing anything you know I might as well give this a go and like at least get to a point where I'm I'm, I'm better at it because <laughs> I was just I, I love your answer is always yeah I'm not doing anything <laughs> yeah, why not you know what do you got to lose <laughs> well, I say no later so I took the opportunity and it was uh, myself, uh, a guy named Tom who was from Thailand, and then uh, Mobiyama, Mobiyama-san, the head chef. The three of us uh, all migrated down to Lombard, Illinois, which is a suburb in western Chicago. And uh, we worked for the head head chef, you know, Mr. Cotto, who was the head chef for all 50 restaurants at the time. And it was, it was a pretty... You know, it was a good location. It was cool. A ton of, ton of volume going through there. And it was, uh, 
Yeah, I was drinking from a fire hose. I mean, it was it was it was awesome. Uh, I loved it. I was the only native English speaker in the restaurant. You know, it was like fifty employees, and it was really cool. I was when I was talking to somebody recently about what a great experience before joining special operations because I'm immersed in multiple different cultures. You know, we had Korean and Japanese and Ecuadorian and Mexican and Filipino and Thai. And, and then one dumb freaking white dude, you know, and it was really cool. And I got to know a little bit about each culture and because I was, you know, this just anomaly in there, they, everybody from their different groups embraced me and wanted to, you know, show the, the beauty of their cultures. And it was really cool. I got to learn a lot about, uh, many different cultures, you know, from everybody that worked there, whether from food to do this, don't do that to the, just the, it was just, it was a cool experience. Like you can't replicate that anywhere. And it was, uh, it was fascinating, but it was lonely as shit, man. Like I was living in, you know, like Bolingbrook, Illinois in a dumpy ass studio. And like, I had no, you know, I had friends from work, but it, I was just alone. It was nuts. And, uh, and the girl I was dating at the time, and part of the reason I moved to Chicago was she was down there living there. And then when I moved down there, she, uh, moved to Paris. And so I was like, fuck. Okay. And so I stayed at Benny Hanna's until like, all right, I need to go over, go over Sears. <laughs> and, uh, so I quit and moved to Paris, stayed with her, uh, well, she was there for, I went over there with her or met her there. And then like two and a half weeks over there, she moved to Barcelona, got moved to Barcelona. So I just stayed in Paris with uh, a couple of her friends until I ran out of money and then came back into the Navy. So with running out of money and coming back, um, was that kind of, did that push you over the edge or were you just, were you just kind of, a wanderer and you, you needed something uh, to, to give you purpose. A couple things happened, uh, on the flight over to Paris, uh, Saddam invaded Kuwait. Okay. And so I'm like, Oh, okay, cool. Uh, you know, and, and, and over the course of that time I'd been entertaining, okay, the Marine Corps is out. They don't want me. Uh, I got a couple blemishes on my record that I'm gonna need to resolve. And, but I really would like to go do four years in the military. You know, I got, I got all the shit out of my system and I should do that. And then when I got back, uh, the guy who did my tattoos, he was a little bit older. He's like a mentor to me, a guy named T. Well, we called him T, his name was Todd, but, uh, he was a good mentor and a role model in, in some ways. And he sat me down one night and just like, look, dumbass, you know? you are going down the wrong path and you need to go in the military and you can either go to the recruiting station on your own volition, or I'm going to knock you on your ass and drag you in by the nape of your neck. And, uh, I told him to fuck off and he clocked me and I went into the recruiting station a couple days later, <laughs> signed up for the Navy. And, uh, they played when I was waiting in the lobby, you know, and talked to somebody, they had the seal recruiting video on called be someone special. You can YouTube it. It's like old and it's funny, but, uh, that sold me on. I'm like, fuck, that's what I'm going to do, man. Cause I had, I've been thinking about the Navy 
particular because my aunt was uh, HT in the Navy, and she was closer in age to me than you know my mom, who's her you know oldest sister, old, second oldest sister, and you know her and I got along great. She's like, you should join the Navy, you know, you like you're you're competent in the water. You you know you grew up swimming. You would love being a diver, and so I was going in to specifically look at that. And then I saw that seal video. I'm like, ah, oh, I got I got to see if I could do that. I just like it was a challenge, and I had to I had to try it. But that was never on your mind in the start, right? You just wanted to go in the navy and and yeah, do the military thing. But special operations were never at the forefront. No, I never gave it. Yeah, you know, I had no idea what it was. I was ignorant. No idea yeah. what seals were really. I think the first time I saw it was with the movie Navy Seals. That was the first time that I had seen. Oh, yeah. yeah, I mean, like, I didn't know. Like, I'd heard of it. It was this nebulous thing. And I remember, right. you know, the, the first time I really heard of them was, uh, well, my buddy Donnie, we were looking at a military catalog. It was a seal patch. I'm like, what are they? What's that? He's like, oh, man, they're like, they're, they're secretive and badass. And, okay, cool. That piqued my curiosity a bit. But then, uh, I remember uh, the Panama invasion and four team guys got killed. And that's the first time it really jumped out at me. Like, Oh, okay. Well, Panama, like, is that even a conflict? And four seals got killed. Like, what are they doing that is putting them in harm's way like that? And that, that really appealed to me, but uh, that was kind of the first real snapshot i think that's the first real snapshot like the american public ever got of them was you know that image of you know the guys taking uh you know the four fallen angels off that plane at dover and their dress blues with the trident gold you know that big gold trident I'm like wow that's that's a pretty powerful image that stuck with me when i went to that recruiting station and i saw the video and uh it was hell week you know they showed clips of first phase in hell week i'm like okay i need to i need to i need that challenge i have to see if i'm tough enough mentally and physically to make it through that and that's what sold me on it you know i like to i grew up competitive swimming i like i liked and that's a it's a purely individual sport you know only you know only you know if you're pushing yourself to the limit uh and the harder you push yourself, the, the more success you're going to have. And so I really, like, that was my life and when it came to athletics. I mean, I loved other sports, too, and I did everything. But that was the one that was I was, I was good at, and I liked it. And I love that just, you know, you against yourself uh, competition. You see how hard you can push yourself. And that to me was like a per like so the seal thing was like a perfect fit right i mean to me first phase what from what i saw at that point in time at the recruiting station first phase in hell week was that it was a competition against yourself against yourself are you going to make it through or not you know are you gonna, each evolution each you know how mentally tough are you can you push yourself and i wanted i had to know like i i, I would my life would be if I never gave that a chance, my life would be completely different. You know, I don't think I would be the person I am because I had to see how far I can push myself mentally and physically. That's just the way I'm wired. And, and that they, I got it in spades. Well, <laughs> and, and, and that was going to be my next question. So 
you see this video, you know what you want to do with that, and then you get yeah. to basic. Um, yep. And by all accounts, a lot of people say when they went, they gained weight before they went over and, and started buds, that it wasn't that challenging. Did you get there and think, oh, shit. Uh, buds is challenging. I don't know. Like, no, 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 not buds. When you get okay. to basic training for the Navy, because you get a seal oh, contract, like, right? Joke, man. I'm like, what the hell did I do? Like, yeah. And like, I was really second guessing myself. Like, this is laughable, man. I'm like, this is, this is the selection to join the U S military. Like, are you shitting me, man? Like it, it was, it, it was frustrating, but then, then you quickly flip a switch and go, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to be the best here. And I'm going to, and then I'm going to, and I bring people with me too. Like, you know, I, this guy over here obviously has never left mommy's side. And so I'm going to help him out too and, and be a role model for him or, or give him some words of encouragement. And so you take on additional tasks and, uh, or, or you try to make it more challenging. Right. So like, cause it just, it wasn't a challenge. I mean, other than the mundane, you know, like, folding your shirts, t-shirts this way and making your bed this way and marching this way. Okay, cool. You know, a bonobo monkey can figure that out. But, uh, but then, then you say, okay, how do I make this more challenging? How do, and how do I bring people with me who are struggling with it? You know, like it, it is a culture shock, like for some people to, you know, two weeks ago you were living at mommy and daddy's house and then, you know, you're thrust into this. It's, it's a, it is a shocking environment. So help them out. Like, you know, be empathetic. Right. And, uh, so yeah, but I was like, Oh my God, I should have joined the Marines. You know, that's the, and, and the thing is, it was doubly bad too for us. Cause I went to boot camp in San Diego and the, in the Navy galley was getting refurbished or no, the Marine Corps recruit depot galley chow hall was getting refurbished. So the Marine recruits were using the same, uh, mess hall we were using and so you know here's all of us in our blue dungarees you know doing the, the squid march and then there's these marines and their camis locked tight you know with that marine corps cadence you know and those drill instructors are all like six foot five gargantuan dudes you're like okay that's the military you know and i was really regretting not joining the marine corps at that point because it's just like that's what that's what men are, you know, like that's what the military should be. Uh, and then I grad, but I graduated boot camp, you know, and, and in the prop, when I was at boot camp, I ended up uh, navigating it so I could screen for buds. And I got, you know, I made a pass the, the screening test and, uh, you know, got orders to go to buds after I'd completed my um, follow on a school. And that a school was agonizing as well. It was like, oh, cause you know, you're, you're out of the boot camp phase, but it's still like, wow, like it was, I, I struggled in that regular Navy environment. What, what was it? Uh, what was your A school? Uh, operations specialist. So like working the radars and plotting okay. navigation chart courses and all that. It was, uh, so you would have been on a ship. Oh yeah. That yeah. In the combat uh, information center, like yeah, plotting, you know, surface, air subsurface plots and navigating and i mean it, like it was technically challenging uh and you, but okay so you know you, you come to a point where like okay what what are you thinking of it like i'm here for 14 weeks so apply yourself 
And so I did. Like, part of it was uh, part of it was just to be a dick. But like, you know, if you were at that halfway point, whoever had the highest score in the class got the first choice of orders. And so there was like this this new Aegis cruiser was uh, the Navy had just you know taken it up. You know, it, it was now a, a Navy vessel. These Aegis cruisers. And there was one set of orders to an Aegis cruiser. And so like I started telling everybody, well, Hey man, if I'm, if I'm like in first place, you know, at the halfway point, when we pick orders, I'm skipping buds, man, I'm taking that Aegis cruiser. And, uh, which I, you know, I was totally bullshitting with them, but it got everybody pissed off, man. So I, uh, but it did motivate me to, uh, be able to say no to that. So I, like, I ended up getting honored grad for that. And, uh, you know, like, uh, I'm going to take the Aegis Cruiser. And I went in to get orders. And, uh, nah, I'm still going to Bud's, man. So after, you know, so many people have talked about Bud's that it's been kind of talked to death about it. Right. Um, later on, I'd like to talk about when you go back as as an enlisted. But is there anything that stood out uh, for Bud's to you before, you know, that kind of set you on your path in your military career? Is there anything that stood out or anything that you think kind of set you apart? Uh, you know, I had, by the time I got the buds, I had some, I had some salt on my skin and some life experience, you know, I'd seen some dumb shit. I've been part of some dumb shit. Uh, I've been on my own for quite a few years. Uh, and you know, did a lot of, like I said, did a lot of dumb shit. Uh, which is fun, but, uh, yeah, so I had more experience because a lot of the people there in my class were, you know, they had just come from high school and, and uh, or they just different, different environment, you know? So I, I started, I had tattoos, you know, going in, there wasn't a lot of people with tattoos, but I was pretty covered up at that point. And they just put a huge target on my back as well. You know, they, they thought I just got out of prison or I was some neo-Nazi fucker or whatever else. And, uh, you know, like, so I, I, I stood out, you know, that n- people didn't look like me. Uh, they didn't have my background. So, uh, it, it was, I was kind of a one-off, but, uh, no, I think, uh, I mean, the biggest prep for me for buds other than, uh, all the dumb shit I had done and, and being on my own for, you know, since you know, the moment I turned 18, really, uh, was competitive swimming, you know, that, that kind of mindset of just pushing yourself. And like my, like Donnie, the guy, the guy played bass, like we do dumb shit. Like, Hey, it's, you know, the coldest day of the year. Let's go jump in Lake Michigan just to see if we can do it. You know, he was one of those guys who like to push the envelope as well. And, uh, so I got the buds and, uh, now buds was a challenge, man. Uh, the first phase though, like for me, the, the, the beauty of buds is that it'll find your Achilles heel. Right. And, and I mean, you, you have division one NCAA, uh, all Americans, you have Olympic caliber athletes, uh, who quit like it's cool. Like they've never been pushed in, in this, uh, it found their Achilles heel and they quit. Uh, like for me, like first phase hell week, uh, that didn't, it sucked. Don't get me wrong. It was horrible, but it didn't phase me. Like it, it wasn't, it never 
I found there was never a, a, a moment of weakness where I'm like, fuck this. I want to quit. Uh, you know, that, that I, I love that environment. I love that. Just that bring it on. See, you can't hurt me, you know, or see how hard you can push me and I'm going to keep going. That was cool. Uh, what got me was like die phase, you know, uh, just the, the lead up to uh, pool comp competency, that test, like that was hard, man. I realized I really like being able to breathe, like holding my, I, like <laughs> being underwater and not being able to breathe sucks, you know, especially when you're, you know, like, you know, chicken necking, you know, trying and, uh, yeah, that, that was, uh, that was my mental hurdle. That was my Mount Everest and buds was getting over that hurdle. And once I did, uh, it was like, okay, I'm making it. There's nothing's going to stop me here. But yeah, you find those, you have that moment of weakness, whatever it is. It's, it's something, and it's not what you expect because you don't know and, until you're pushed to brink on something. And it has to be, you know, multiple things. You're going to get pushed and pushed and challenged and challenged. And there's going to be that one chink in your armor that the buds is okay we found that one chink and we're going to hammer you on it and you need to have the mental capacity to power through that and that's once you get through that hurdle you're unstoppable and everybody's everybody's hurdle is different okay so let's talk about that when you go back as an instructor uh well no i'm sorry you were uh you were master chief there right yeah, yeah, I ran first phase for. Okay, uh, I did. Yeah. So as you run it, are you on that same mentality where you're looking for you're looking for that thing to go after? Uh, the instructor staff certainly is. You know, right. My job is to corral them a bit, but it, it was like, but because the instructor staff was so professional and really did a good job of exploiting weaknesses and finding those weaknesses. Um. Uh, I had the luxury of being a step back, you know, make one like from, from the, from the leadership side, making sure that they're sticking to the curriculum and, you know, that they know exactly where the left and right flanks are, uh, which they did. They, they know right where that line is that they couldn't cross uh, at, from the instructor staff. And they did a great job doing that, but I could, I could sit back and watch and, and I could watch all the students and, and see them evolve or devolve you know, over the course, you know, hour by hour, day by day, week by week, uh, culminating really with Hell Week. And, and, and Hell Week is just it's a freaking awesome. It's beautiful evolution. I loved it. I, I tried to, you know, it, it was exhausting for me because I, I would try to be, I, I was a floater and I try, I would just sleep in the office because I, I, I wanted to be, you know, if I could stay awake the whole five days and watch everything going on, I, I would have. Uh, Cause it was really cool to see kids. They had watched for the first four weeks of training, uh, day one, wide eyed and like, what the hell's going on? And, you know, you start, you start weeding out the chaff and then there's this group that's getting ready to go into hell week. And you, you think they're okay. They survived this far, but then when hell week hits and the screws are completely put to them, and there, you don't have the luxury of having that moment of weakness. You just have to power through it. Watching that transformation from like day one breakout of Hell Week to like Wednesday 
you know, those couple, you know, because all the attrition happens the first two and a half days. Uh, seeing people just shine, it was so cool. And, and, and we're watching people's wheels come off, you know. Uh, but, like, you know, the, the people you don't expect when the screws get put to them, watching them step up and just carry a class, a boat crew or a class with them, you know. Some kid who's from, you know, the inner city of Chicago or from the mountains of West Virginia, you know, and they just, they are put in this crucible and they start to thrive. They found their purpose, you know, and they just dominate the dojo. And in that, that positive mental attitude and that, like, you can't hurt me spirit, indomitable spirit they have just carries people with them. And that was so cool to watch, you know, and, uh, and then you'd watch people just come unglued like they could not, it just became too much for them. But, uh, it was, it, it's a really, just from a, just, just as a human watching, cause what, what other environment do you get to put human beings under such unbelievable duress and then get to observe their behavior and how they're. You know, I found it fascinating to watch because it, I mean, Bud's and Howie is no exception. It's just, a, it's a series of really, really simple tasks. You know, you just throw in a ton of distractions and, and discomforts uh, on top of that simple task that make it un unbearable for 99.99% of the population. But that point, you know, 0.1% that s thrives in that, it, man, it's cool as hell to see. You know, it's just a, it's, you know, they're always looking at it from a, I don't know. I'd I love to see somebody take a really deep psychological look at, at Hell Week and, and how the, you know, what, what truly makes people tick. You know, it's, it's just a really cool thing to see. I loved it. That was such a rewarding tour, man. I think you would get a lot of different answers on what makes them tick. That would be the interesting part to me because I think with 50 people, you would get 50 different answers or at least 45 or 46 different answers. Yeah. But I think with each, each one of them though, there's this, uh, just self, uh, motivation, right? This discipline, the self motivation, this, this discipline to ignore the discomfort, right? Like just that's, and that's what discipline really is. It's, you know, being able to get a job done, whatever your goal is, your task is, uh, while ignoring discomforts and distractions, you know, you just, Hey, I got to do this task. It's a three mile run, but we're just going to do it with, we're going to, we're going to lay in the surf zone till you're hypothermic. You're going to roll around the sand till every move you make shapes your skin. We're going to put a 300 boat pound boat on your head with, you know, five other dudes underneath the boat. And then, but then we're going to run the three miles. It's still a three mile run. Right. But it's just all this miserable shits layered on top of it. And if you focus on a three mile run, guess what? You're good to go. But if you focus on the fact that, you know, your ass is chafed or your hypothermic and your hip flexors are locked up or the hair is getting rubbed off the top of your head and you worry about that, you're going to come unglued. Man. And, uh, that, that's the beauty of pods, man. I think, you know, it's, uh, it's really cool. Well, let's talk about your time in the teams. Um, you, you moved around quite a bit, um, whether that be in a leadership yeah. position, whether that be in an operational position. 
Um, with SEAL Team 3, you're looking about 90, 92, 93 when you go over to SEAL Team yeah. 3? Okay, so yeah, yeah. At, at this point in time, there's you had you know some stuff going on in the Middle East. You had some conflicts going on, but there wasn't a lot going on. So as you go to the SEAL teams, is there still work being done, or are you worried that you might not see that end result of everything that you've trained for? When you get out of buds and you check in the team, you 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 you, you have the rose colored shades on. You think, oh, cool, man. Get to the teams. We're gonna start kicking in doors and shooting bad guys and doing the nation's, you know, dirty deeds for the nation. And uh, you quickly realize that, you know, we're in a Cold War environment. And uh, despite the Gulf, you know, war, that was a little bump in there. Or like Panama and Grenada before that. But, you know, there was no uh, really conflict. But, you know, the the Team 3 and, and Team 1 and Team 5 were in the East Coast, the teams on the East Coast are the same way. We had, uh, you know, there a ton of Vietnam vets in there. And we, we idolized them, right? You know, they were the last SEALs to really deal with sustained combat. And they ran all the training. They were the command master chiefs or the commanding officers. And they were, you know, we just idolized them. And uh, they, you know, instilled in us like, hey, you know, train, you're going to train hard, you're going to master the basics, you're going to get good because you never know when things are going to change and you're going to be called up. And, you know, and so that was the environment, right? It was uh, always perpetually training for, you know, what could happen, but not, you know, nev that never did happen and you know, until 9-11. But, man, they were... Uh, we idolized them. I still, I mean, like, and I still, you know, am, uh, you know, through my, uh, you know, when I was CMC at SEAL Team 1, I got, to, I was there for the 50th anniversary. So I got to know all the plank owners and the original Vietnam vets and from Team 1 and, and Team 2. And, man, I still idolize those guys. You know, they were, they're just unbelievable human beings. And I'm friends with them. And I love to go out and have, you know, a drink with them or whatever else. But, uh you know, that's who brought us up in the SEAL teams. And, and so they did it. I mean, I, they did a great job instilling uh, a mastery of the basics in us and and just a great mentors, great role models for all of us. And, uh, you know, then 9-11 happened. And now, where are you at when 9-11 happens? Are you a development group by then? Yeah, I was at, I was at Damn Neck at the time. Now, uh, I want to I, I point out something. I want to ask you something, and I want you to tell me if this is right. You had been there for a while, um, and your wife had told you it's time to go. Uh, yeah, she was. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the way that played out was. Uh, <laughs> but I you had actually asked to leave, right? No, no, I, I loved it there. It was, uh, to me, it's it, like when I describe it, it's just the teams, like right. a 10X version of teams, right? So. If you like the SEAL teams, if you have thick skin, uh, you're going to love it. If you have thin skin, if uh, you're on the fence of the teams, that place will eat you alive. If you're even allowed to get in the door, right? Because you got to go through a whole other selection process. And uh, it's a grind, man. I didn't think it'd be as bad as it was, but it sucked. And uh, But it has to be that way. The place is, the place is insane, man. I loved it. I loved everybody there. 
Uh, I, I love the seriousness of it. Everything was, everything was always serious. Like, you know, it was, I mean, you fucked around a lot, but the, uh, you just never knew, right? You're tied to a pager. And it was just a, it was a cool environment. Man. I really dug it. Uh, my wife had had it though. And, uh, and it was right, you know, it was right before nine 11. So I was like, Oh shit. Okay. You know, it's more of the same, you know, we're all dressed up, you know, with nowhere to go. And, uh, so my wife's like, yeah, I'm, I'm done. I'm moving back. I'm like, okay, cool. Fair enough. You know, I said it'd be three years. It's been four and a half. And so, uh, and then the CMC came down and he's like, Hey man, what can I, I sell orders for you? You know, you're leaving. What can I get you? You know, what can I offer you to stay? I'm like, I'm like, Perry, man, I'll, I'll clean the bell right off the floor of the boat barn, man. Like, you know, and all the shitters in the, you know, in the third deck, I don't care. I like, I love it here, but I, I want to stay married. He's like, oh man, cool. Family first, you know, take care of your family. You know, the teams will come and go, but your family's forever. And, uh, that's what I needed to hear. And, you know, my hat's off to the guy. Cause that's exactly it. That is exactly what I needed to hear. And then nine 11 happened. And, uh, I'm just like, fuck this, man. I'm not going. And, uh, Everybody's coming up, bugging him, going, hey, man, let him stay. Cancel his orders. And then finally he came down. He's like, hey, look, jerk off. Like, you're not, I'm not canceling your orders. He's like, you know what's going to happen with Afghanistan? We're going to launch a few Tomahawk missiles, call it good, and then uh, and then we're going to be back to, you know, status quo again. And which is like the most egregious, you know, understatement of, you know, ever. But it was the right thing I needed to hear. He's like, look, man, you're not getting divorced over this. And I'm like, all right, fair enough. Which, and, uh, which to his credit is, is pretty amazing to hear. And, and by no means, I didn't want you to think that, that I thought you asked to leave. What I meant was I knew that your wife had said that to you and it was time to take orders yeah. and go back to the West coast to be by family. So you had, yeah. and if nine 11 never happened, cool. You know, like it would have been no big deal uh, because it did happen. Uh, you know, okay. I like you, I immediately, like that day was so weird, man. Like we were, uh, we were back in, in Virginia beach for a couple months and, uh, we we're doing a Spanish course cause we we're going to go do some stuff in that part of the world. And, uh, one of, uh, my best friends, uh, we were in the Spanish class together and he was from New Jersey and he, we're on a break. He's like, comes in he's like you know, holy shit you know a plane just flew into the world trade center like no way man so he went out in the lobby and looked at the tv we had mounted and uh as we're watching it another plane the other plane went in the world the other tower and we're like like all of us were like you could just feel it like you hear a pin drop man we're like oh, fuck game on man like we knew immediately all of us right there were like fuck that's al-qaeda man it's been laden you know, like we, cause we've been tracking it for years, you know? And, uh, we're like, fuck, that guy's got balls, man. And then that like, we canceled the class and we started walking back up to the team room and that's when the Pentagon got hit. And they were like, it was, that was just an eerie day, man. At one point, I think we were all going to get deputized to be air marshals and some weird shit like that. And, and then, then there was just this calm and, uh, I remember just calling my wife like, hey, you tracking the news? She's like, yeah. I'm like, well, you know the deal. And she's like, yeah, I'll see you when I see you. 
And, uh, but it, it was, uh, but then it just calmed down, man. It was like, it was a very, uh, like a deep breath, you know, before, uh, a crazy exhale, you know? So it was like, you know, four or five weeks of, uh, a lot of calculated planning and taking a very measured approach to what we were going to do next, you know, as a, as a national, uh, strategy. But yeah, we were right in the middle of that. But, uh, yeah, like, I mean, yeah, my timing's horrible. Like the day I left the command was the day we went into Afghanistan. And, uh, I mean, that's always going to be a bitter pill with me. Right. I mean, I, I, you know, and I, and that's what I was going to ask you is, is that always that, that, that one thing in your career that'll always stick out to you? Oh, it always taught me. Yeah. I mean, like it wasn't our guys that went in on that first salvo, but you know, a year later, that guy that told me, you know, from New Jersey, one of my best friends, Dave Tapper, you know, got killed in Afghanistan. And I feel like, okay, well, if I was there, would that have happened? Or would it have been me? Uh, I mean, you can't like second guess decisions or what happened because I'm happy with my life. Uh, And I had a cool career and I got, you know, and like the most important thing is my wife and my kids, man. Like, had I said, fuck that, I'm staying to get my jihad on uh, at, at, at that place. Uh, I wouldn't have my wife and son and I wouldn't have my daughter. She never would have been born. You know, I would be alienated from them. So, uh, you know, circling back to the, the CMC at the time, Amnac Perry, uh, you know, I, I owe him a debt I'll never be able to repay because, you know, he looked, he looked right through me and told me exactly what I needed to hear. And, uh, yeah, I mean, selfishly, I, I wish I never left the place. I mean, I watched all the cool shit they did and continue to do. And, uh, it's humbling. It's humbling to have been a part of it. And I would have loved to have been able to, uh, been part of it, but you know, okay. Is that kind of selfish desire uh, worth sacrificing my family for? Well, fuck no, man. You know, but well, still, yeah, let me like, put a hard question to you. Yeah. Let me, let me play devil's advocate. That's a great thing that you're saying. And, and I absolutely 1000% believe in it. How many people believe that though? I mean, let's I be I honest think- with honest numbers. Yeah. I don't know. That's a hard one to say. You know, you never truly know what goes on behind closed doors at the house or in between people's ears. Uh, because, you know, we're in such a, an environment of bravado. And, and some of it's very real and not superficial at all. But then but it's hard to decipher what's superficial and what's real, right? I mean, I know guys who you know for sure it's not superficial, man. There's some hard core dudes that uh i i i can never be right like i, I mean and, and a lot of them are at that place i mean they're like and i don't know if it's that's where they are or they're that's a product of uh combat deployment after combat deployment after combat deployment uh you know i don't know if they grew into that and now that's you know become such a component of who they are but there's some, you know, insanely dedicated, selfless individuals who will stop at nothing to put 
uh, the country first before everything and, and doing the job for the con the dirty work for the country first. Uh, for me, from, you know, when I was a kid, I wanted to have kids and be a dad. And so, uh, and that was, that's just as important to me. And so I think, uh, I very easily could have gone down that path because I, 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 I truly love the work we do. And I love that. I love that being scared and, and the challenge, but, uh, I also love being a dad and a, and a, and a parent or, and, uh, our dad and a husband and, and trying to raise, you know, I'm going to die at some point. My kids are what's going to, you know, you know, I got two of them. So I better instill in both of them, you know, how to make the world a better place, how to do, do things the right way. And, 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 you know, and, uh, you know, make the world better that way. You can, you know, that's, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. I think, uh, it, it's hard in, in this community. You want to, you know, you want to be there. You, you want, you want, you're the first one to raise your hand. You want to be the guy going out there and, and doing it. Right. I mean, we all were wanted that not more than anything else. And we got it and we still wanted it. You know, you got a taste of it. You're like, oh, this is, we're good at, we're good at what we do. We're good at our trade, but, uh, you know, you're not doing the world any favors either by, uh, being, you know, having a bunch of bastard children, if you will, uh, cause you're not there to bring them up the right way. Right. I want my kids to be upstanding citizens. I don't give a fuck if they're in the military or not. I want them to be good citizens. And that's as equally as important for national security as putting bullets in, you know, Al Qaeda's head or whomever is the enemy to the country, uh, you know, and that's where, you know, it's, I, I, I mean, I don't, I wish everybody, every parent in this country would look at it that way. Like it's important to raise good kids. Instead, we're worried about virtue signaling and all this other crap, you know, and you got a bunch of train wreck kids. So, do I don't you, know. It's a, uh, yeah. Question, do you though. think that, this 20 years of, of war, this 20 years of combat, it's been some people's entire career. Do yeah. you think that it's done something to the families? Oh, completely. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it absolutely has. I mean, you know, I, it's a, like I had a, compared to some of those guys, like we're charging constantly, you know, I ended up, through getting promoted and whatnot, being forced in these different roles where I'm around a little bit more, uh, you know, guys who are, you know, four or five years younger than me, uh, you know, so when I was in E7, they were just making E5, man, those guys took the brunt of it. They were doing deployment after deployment after deployment. And, and all of it was in extremely kinetic environments. Uh, that takes its toll. Right. And, it's going to take it mean, mentally and physically. And, you know, it's a challenge to go from that. If you have a family to go back to the family and, you know, try to put that firewall between the two. It's, I mean, it's freaking almost impossible, you know, and, and, and it takes its toll on the family, you know? Uh, I mean, just, but I mean that it's not just with combat. I mean, I think, 
you know, any sailor or Marine or army cat or air force cat who deploys for six months, a year, you know, and leaves the wife or husband and the kids at home, man, you know, like from the kid's perspective, it's, it's traumatic. Like I remember talking to my kids when I retired and it's like my son now, he's, you know, 23, we'll have these candid conversations. He's like, man, that sucked. You know, like being in, you know, like how old is he at that, you know, like, he was like six years old and you're gone for seven months. He's like, that sucks. Particularly because like my, my philosophy is if I'm at home, I want to be with my kids, man. Like they're my life, you know, they're my legacy. They're everything to me. And so we're connected at the hip. And then all of a sudden I'm gone for seven months. That's traumatic as fuck on the kids, man. That leaves a mark. Oh, you know, my daughter didn't even realize I was, I was a seal. <laughs> I mean, she didn't even know what that was until I retired. She's like, wait, you were in Iraq for that time? I'm like, yeah. And that time too? Yeah. And I was like, holy shit. But, uh, so I try to protect them from it, but just being gone, doesn't matter what it is. You know, the kids don't care if you're kicking in doors or, you know, shipping paint on the deck of a ship, you're not there. And that hurts the family and it, and it adds tension with your spouse, you know? Uh, you know, they're, they're having to be mom and dad and run a family and you're not there. And, you know, like as soon as you deploy is when all the shit happens, you know, the water heater blows, uh, the car breaks down and you're not there to help and you're helpless to it. And, and there's going to be some resentment there or, you know, they, they develop such an independent streak that when you're home, you know, you're kind of the outsider coming in and it's a, it's a readjustment on their part. It's a readjustment on your part. And it's a, it's a real struggle. And, and, and 20 years of that, yeah, of course, it's going to just, it's going to leave a mark on families, you know, and it's, uh, they're doing a good job of trying to mitigate that, at least in Naval Special Warfare, you know, they, a lot of stuff for the families. But like my wife was like, I don't want to be reminded you're gone. Like, I just want life to go normal for the kids. You're just not here. And I don't want people going, oh, thank you for your service. Or can I help you? Like, just leave me alone, you know, and that, that was her coping mechanism. Others just embrace all the support and whatever else. I mean, everybody's got their own way of dealing with it, but, uh, but you're dealing with it. You know, it's, it's, it's an issue and it leaves, like I said, it leaves a mark on the kids, no matter what, you know, one parent, if you're an engaged parent and you're gone for three months, four months, six months, seven months, a year, it fucks kids up some way, shape or form, you know? And, uh, and it's, it's unavoidable, you know, you can't, it comes with the territory. Is there anything that can be done to mitigate that? I mean, I know you said that there's support networks and stuff like that, but I mean, it doesn't sound like a lot. And and, and I'm talking from you. I'm talking from a law enforcement perspective too. Yeah. Um. It you know it's it's there, but it's not the the parents gone. So is there anything that can mitigate it and still let you be? that guy or that girl and still get that job done because as far as I'm concerned, you can't be everything. I think, and I can only speak for myself at work, but when you know, you know, you're going to deploy, you know, you're going to be gone for blocks on blocks of training and gone for hundreds of days a year. When you are home, be present. When you are home, you know, don't go out steaming with the boys. When you are home, you're going to hang out with your kids and they're going to be a hundred percent of your focus. And your wife is going to be a hundred percent of your focus. That family unit 
needs to be your focus. Put the fucking phone down. Don't worry about calling your bros. Don't go out, you know, for a, a, a late Friday afternoon at Danny's. Go home and play with your kids and, and take your wife to dinner or whatever because you're going to be gone for a block. And then when you come back home, pick, pick that up right off you know, as best you can where you left off and be present. You know, when you're at work, be the baddest motherfucker there is. When you're at home, be the best parent you can be. And that's the only way, you know, it doesn't matter programs and, you know, spa days and all this crap is not going to mitigate you being present when you're at home. And uh, there's going to be painful transitions, but you just have to stick with it and be your, your, your freaking dad, man. Be the dad, you know what I mean? And, and help be there with your kids when you're there, you know, don't watch football. Don't do it. You know, all the shit you want to do. That goes out the window. Your 100% focus is to do what your kids want to do and be there with them and play with them or teach them or, you know, just hug them and, uh, you know, let them know. And I, and we tried our best to do that, you know, my wife and I. And I think it paid off, you know, like my relationship with my kids is great. I mean, they do dumb shit, but I did tons. Of, I did way worse dumb shit. So, you know, it's and we can talk like they'll talk to us, man, like they'll probably more blunt than I wish they were, but, uh, but that's cool, you know, and it was a lot of work and, you know, and okay, to do that, I had to give up staying at that group, which sucked. Uh, you know, I had to, you know, I gave up on it. I had to, I had to balance, like, I want to do this work wise and, you know, selfishly, I want to do that, but I have to say no, because at the end of the day, my kids are going to be with me till the day I die. And, uh, it, it, it's, uh, those are hard decisions to make, you know, but you, you know, and, and it's individual, you know, for me, that was the right decision to make. And I'm totally at peace with it, you know? So you talk about leadership a lot. Uh, I want to talk about toxic leadership. And the big thing that I want to ask off the bat is what's the formula for it? Is, is it one certain thing? Is it a bunch of different things? And then how do you combat that toxic leadership once you see it in the organization? So that the toxic leadership always seems to be at the highest levels. And what it really, in my opinion, if I was going to get to the root cause of it, it's generally a lack of humility. And what I mean by that is if you look at, but the SEAL, the SEAL teams, or you look at, in, in the SEAL teams, you have buds, you have the selection process. And so it's a crucible and the people that come out the other end of it, they've been screened, they've been vetted. They're really talented and they're smart. They can solve problems and they're going to bend over backwards to get things done. They're good, talented individuals. So we hired really good talent in the private sector, the same way, right? You, you have the screening process. You try to hire the most talented and the best cultural fit to the organization. You bring them on board. What toxic leaders fail to do is tap into that talent, right? You went out of your way not to hire a bunch of dummies. You, you per intentionally hired smart people. So tap into that knowledge base. I don't care if they're junior or senior or what. They have their own perspective and their own skills they bring to the table. And you're a fool 
people if you don't ask them those questions or have them come up with solutions too, or, or take their input to help you make an informed decision. What toxic leaders tend to do is they have the, 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 the right answer, the answer they think they, uh, is the solution in their head. And everybody else is a freaking moron and I'm the smartest person in the room and this is what we're doing. And you don't solicit input. You don't listen to advice. You don't get, uh, people challenging your assumptions. And so bad decisions are made and nobody has buy into it and nobody wants to follow people like that. You know, there's just a, all, all toxic leaders are arrogant. I mean, there, there are toxic leaders that are really weak and spineless and won't make any decision whatsoever, but certainly the SEAL community, the ones that were you know, toxic would have been ones that, uh, just completely arrogant, a, a blatant lack of humility, uh, I, I always kind of frame it as like a passionate leader versus an emotional one. Like a passionate leader is passionate about the organization. They are in love with the problem and are open to all solutions to solve that problem. Whereas the emotional leader, the toxic leader is in love with the solution and it's always theirs or one of their lackeys solutions. You know, they don't want to hear anything else. They don't want to have their assumptions challenged. Uh, and I, and I don't know if it stems from a lack of confidence in their own abilities or what, uh, or, or just a, just a blatant arrogance, but, uh, yeah, it's really detrimental to the organization. And I, I always look at it like, you know, I got where I was at, not because I'm good. It's because I knew how to surround myself with really smart people who I know what my strengths and weaknesses are. Right. So I, I'm going to surround myself with people who are going to compliment, you know, are going to fill in my weaknesses and compliment my strengths you know, and, uh, and I do that in the military and I, I did it in the military and I do it in the private sector. You know, I know what I'm good at and I know what I suck at. And so I want people, I'm going to hire people who are smarter than me and are going to, you know, fill in all those gaps. Uh, and a toxic leader can't, won't do that because they think they're the shit. You know, they, they, they got all the answers to everything. They don't like to, they don't like to be embarrassed. They don't like to, you know, uh, have their faults exposed. And that's, it's just, Hey, man, that's just inhuman, man. Like be a human being, you know, we, we're, we have strengths, we have weaknesses, acknowledge it man, and run with it, you know, and, and find people that are going to backfill you on the weaknesses. And it's, uh, man, it just, it, it ruins organizations. So, you know, you just never achieve your potential if you, don't tap into every single individual in that organization, you know? And, uh, yeah, it's hard. Well, in an organization like the seals and you have that toxic leadership and you have these people making bad decisions, I want to ask you two different parts to this. How do you get around it as the operator and how do you get around it as the leader that has to talk to that senior leadership and figure things out. Is there a way to do it? Or are you just going and doing yeah. what they say? As a master chief, you had, you're in a great position to, uh, I could say anything to any, anyone, you know, it was kind of nice. I mean, that was, you earned that position, uh, in that respect. I mean, but you had to earn it. Right. And, uh, you know, like I, I just, I, the admiral, it was funny. Like you'd be in the room with all the Navy captains and all their command master chiefs with the Admiral. And 
you know, it was, it was an interesting dynamic, you know, and, and all the admirals we've had, I've really liked, man. I respect the, the shit out of them. They're all like, they don't get there because they're dummies or bad people. Like they're all good and uh, some better than others, but like the ones I worked with, I, I really liked. And, and I liked them even more after they would, you know, sit around the room and they would kind of get stern, you know, a mentor to mentee discussion with the 06s, but then they'd turn over to the, the, the master chiefs and go, what do you think master chief? And they would listen to you and they'd nod and they'd take it on board. Right. And so just that, act from the admiral empowered the master chiefs and he did it they all did it repetitively so that meant that i could go into the room uh of the you know captain or commander i'm advising shut the door and have a very blunt uh conversation and or and discussion you know i want to know his perspective why he's doing what he's doing and he needs to hear my perspective because my perspective is coming from the bulk of the people in the command and, and what, you know, whatever decision he's deciding to make, here's how it's going to be perceived. And we would talk it out and discuss it. And sometimes they get colorful and heated, but we'd open that door up and whatever direction we were going, we were aligned. And then, you know, if it's something I totally disagreed with, it didn't fucking matter. Uh, I'm, I have his back because I'm not, I, you can't undermine him because then the command's going to completely funnel. And now it becomes me uh, trying to sell a shit sandwich to, you know, a bunch of full people. And so I, you know, like, Hey man, you know, and you just have to get them to buy in too, you know, like this is what we're doing and here's why we're doing it. And, well, don't uh, you think that most people will eat a shit sandwich as long as you explain to them why they're eating it? Completely. Absolutely. Yeah, they will. And, and so, but it's how you articulate why you're eating it. Right. If your answer is just cause they're not going to buy that, man. They're too smart for that. You need to have some, you know, it, it, I mean, I, I, I love the, my very first experience in the SEAL teams really was, I remember ta- calling my dad about this, like, man, like the most junior guy can go, why the hell are we doing that? And it's a, it's it serves as a, a, a set of checks and balances, right? You know, why are we doing this? Oh, me as a leader, I better go. Here's why we're doing it, and I better have an articulate answer that the whole butt shed's going to buy into. Because if I don't, I need to rethink what we're asking everybody to do. And so, it's a uh, yeah, it's a uh, that kind of open dialogue. It's really important and being able to ask questions like that from the most junior guy to the most senior. And that's how you get buy-in, you know, understanding why you're doing what you're doing, but you need to be able to articulate that too many, you know, too many leaders are just like, Hey, because I said, so orders is orders. Fuck that, man. Like we evolved beyond that. Right. Yeah. Sometimes there is just shut up and do it because time's of the essence and I'm getting paid to make that decision. But, but you, you kind of know when those situations arise, you know, in, in the environment. But, you know, some of the longer term things, uh, you ha- if, if you're a good leader, you're going to ask for dissenting viewpoints. And if you're allowed to give your dissenting viewpoint, even if, the, even if they, you know, the guy decides doesn't take it, he listens to it, but still goes with the, his original decision. At least you got the air your concerns out and like, okay, he listened to it. 
and he's getting paid the big bucks to make this decision with all the available information. And I, I did my due diligence and my obligation to give him, you know, unsolicited or solicited advice and input for him to make the most informed, educated decision he can. And if you, if that's the process, you're going to always get buy-in for the most part. And uh, that's how you got to, that's how you got to run things, especially when you got really dynamic, critical thinking individuals. And I'm glad you brought that up because I remember the first time we talked to each other and you told me question everything. And I was like, wait, wait a minute, yeah. wait a minute. You're a command master chief with the Navy SEALs. Yeah. Question everything. And and I don't know if you remember, but I was like, that doesn't make any sense to me. You saying question everything. I, I, I don't want robots and I want people to be able to think on their feet. Right. So my whole my part of my job is to educate people. Right. So. If I tune some kid up at the country store because he looks like a ba- his uniform looks like shit or he's not wearing a cover or whatever the reason is, if I pull him aside and light him up, it, it I'm going to turn it into a teaching point, right? It's not I, I'm not yelling at the kid because I like to yell at him because I don't. It bugs me doing that, but I'm you know I'm going to say hey you know what the fuck you know I'll explode a little bit and then go hey look man. The flagpole's right over there, right? The admiral's over there, and we're trying to hunt for work. And he's gonna—he wants to select the most professional group to do these missions that are stacking up in the future. And he sees you walking into the country store looking like a bag of dicks. You know, he's not gonna have a whole lot of faith that you can execute a mission because you can't follow simple frictions to wear a cover walking into this building you know, from the parking lot to the building. And it seems like a petty thing in the grand scheme of things who gives a shit, but it really, it, it, but it's an attention to detail thing. And it's a professionalism thing that's going to impact you getting to a target to shoot some dude in the head, you know? Oh, oh, okay. And so, you know, me having that very one way conversation and mentorship, you know, vocal mentorship session with this kid, is going to lead to him when he's a chief going, ah, you know what? I remember that one time Master Tushin chewed my ass for doing this. And I understood after he explained it to me, I understood why he did it. And lo and behold, we had a great deployment because the Admiral tapped our platoon to go, you know, to country X to do, you know, mission Y. And I'm going to carry pass that down. And, you know, I, and I like my peers, they did that all the time. My, myself and my peers would do it all the time. It's, it's not to like you at an army base. A lot of times it's some grizzled Sergeant major chewing your ass over just cause they chew your ass. But like, all right, you know, take like, it easy. Oh man. Like it's the bobbits, man. <laughs> and they never left the wire, but they chew your ass, you know, and, uh, cause you look disheveled after sitting in a, you know, 140 degree Humvee for 12 hours. But, uh, you know, I think, you, 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 again, we don't hire stupid people, man, in the military or in the private sector. And so, yeah, it's okay to explain why you're chewing their ass. You know, I want, I want to identify that what you're doing, the behavior you're exhibiting is wrong. And if you leave it at that, great. His response, as soon as you turn it back, is going to be like that. But if you explain why and how it fits into this grand scheme of things and this giant chess game, we're perpetually playing to try to uh, stay gainfully employed. 
ah, then they, then they start nodding north and south and they feel like shit and they change that behavior and they don't let the junior people that they lead exhibit that same behavior. And that's how you, that's how you impact change. You know, it's, it's pointless to just chew somebody's ass, you know, know, it's fine to chew ass, you know, like get into their shit if they did something stupid, but explain why it's stupid and how it impacts the organization as a whole. And when they have that understanding, you know, more often than not, they're like, ah, yeah, I'm sorry. I screwed up. And, and then they become better, you know, sailors, man. So what is the biggest mistake you think you've ever made as a leader? Oh man. Uh, right. Too many to count. Uh, I think uh, failing to lead by example on a couple of occasions, uh, not holding myself to a high enough standard uh, at one point, on, and I'm not going to dive into it too much. But uh, right, yeah, absolutely. It, it haunts me. Like there's there's certain things I did uh, that I just I. I didn't hold myself to the standard I expected of myself. I let uh, the environment and the situation uh, dictate my behavior instead of me dictating it. And uh, so it was uh, not holding myself accountable to the standard I expected of myself and others. And, uh, that was a short term window of it, but, uh, it haunts me to this day. Like I should have done this, 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 and this. And cause, uh, and it all boils to me, it all boils back to, uh, uh, I let my discipline slip. Didn't get into sustainable routines. Uh, and you know, so didn't hold myself to a high enough standard discipline wise. Didn't hold myself to a high enough standard physically and mentally. And then it, then it becomes a, uh, just a chain reaction where you're not physically and mentally as sharp as you should be and what you expect of yourself, which leads to, uh, making easy decisions as opposed to the right ones for yourself and for others. And so, yeah, no, I, was, uh, I learned a ton from that, uh, and it, it still haunts me to this day. And nothing negative came out of it. Uh, there was nothing, you know, nobody died, nobody got hurt, uh, no blemish to the organization, but we failed to reach our full potential because I was not at 100%. And I wasn't at a hundred percent because I wasn't disciplined enough to be at a hundred percent. And so it's more of a fuck. What could we have achieved had I had my shit more together? And, uh, yeah, that one haunts me. So if you don't mind without getting into it, what rank were you at this point? E8. Okay. So, I mean, it was relatively deep into your career then. 
Yeah, yeah. No, I've seen her. And I was thrust into a spot that hindsight, I was not mentally or talent-wise ready for. You know? I thought I was. I wasn't. And uh, that's... Was that pure ego? What's that? Was that pure ego? No. uh, uh, Partly. No, I don't think it was ego. That's never been an issue. Okay. Uh, It was purely a lack of discipline. Like, I should have become, at that, uh, punching a little bit out of my weight class, which is okay. What What... the reaction should have been was, okay, this is really uncomfortable and frightening. I need to study and become an expert and and master this, even though, you know, my, my timeline was way condensed, uh, from what a, a typical timeline should have been. I should have used that as a motivator to, for self improvement, as opposed to, uh, getting complacent and uh yeah so it was uh i I completely failed discipline wise and uh self-improvement wise on that i I had an opportunity to uh take advantage just become a a student of, uh, of the game and i chose not to i took the easy path convenient path and uh that was a mistake you know, could have we didn't reach our full potential by any stretch of the imagination. And that's frustrating when you know how much potential there was. Absolutely. Yeah. Conversely to that, what do you think the best decision you made as a leader? Uh fuck. I don't know. Uh I think uh yeah, one of the things I'm proud of is identifying the talent to replace me, right? Like, uh, you know, seeing, knowing that my time was coming to an end at some point, you know, I could have stayed in longer. There's some really cool jobs I could have taken uh, that I opted to get out instead. But mapping out, the, you know, with, with the intent of, of leaving the organization better than when I got there and setting it up for success down the road. Uh, You know, mapping out that plan and seeing it four years later, you know, at least for the four years after I got out, it it playing out the way I wanted to was pretty cool. You know, like I want this guy here. I want this guy here. I want this guy here. And they're going to do these jobs to groom them for this. But when they get in, you know, ultimately the seat I was in, they're going to be so much fucking better than I was, you know, like all the lessons learned and shit I fucked up. I had an opportunity to shape the future by the things I should have done or, or didn't have the opportunity to do, making sure they had the opportunity to do it and, and make sure they got in that position where, uh, at the end of that to lead the organization to the, you know, to its full potential. And so that was, it was cool. Like when I first got out, I didn't even fucking think about the teams for two, two and a half years. And then going back like three years later and seeing the plan have been played out kind of the way I envisioned it uh, was, was, was cool. And 
and seeing those guys even exceed the high expectations that I had for them and how they're going to kick ass at it, like do better than that. That was freaking rad, you know? And it's like, okay, cool. At least, you know, it was like, okay, my thought process was right. You know, it kind of validated like, cool. They, you know, my, my gut feeling about all these individuals was on the mark and they did, they, they, you know, I had, I had high expectations for them. They exceeded it. So I'm like, man, awesome. You know, like that, that was, that was kind of cool to see, you know, people just do better than you did. You know, that was rad. You, you talked about when you got out and for the first two and a half years, you didn't even think about the teams. You, you went yeah. out, you, you did your thing. Unfortunately, yep. that doesn't happen for a lot of people. A lot of people get wow. out, they lose purpose, they lose drive, they lose mission focus. A lot of things that we've talked about, uh, a lot of PTS, a lot of TBIs. Um, yeah. And it seems to be um, almost growing at an exponential rate now. Uh, although there are lots of alternative uh, medicines, uh, treatment plans, all that kind of stuff. I want to talk to you about PTS. And, and if I can, I want to ask you honestly, do you feel that you suffered PTS, TBI from anything that you did? Oh, definitely the, the traumatic brain injury. But I mean, really, the, the symptoms, they whether it's post-traumatic stress disorder or traumatic brain injury, they kind of manifest the same symptoms. And I remember uh, when I was getting out, uh, I had a case manager working on my BA package and, uh, I got into an argument with her. She's like, Oh, you got, you got post-traumatic stress disorder. I'm like, why do you say that? Like really? Oh, like, okay. I, I challenged her on it. And she's like, you can't go through the career you've had without having all this excess cortisol flowing through your system. And it fucks you up whether you realize it or not. And, uh, you know, and she made a really compelling argument. And then I look back at my behavior, uh, pre nine 11 and post nine 11. And like, okay, you know, maybe she's on to something here. Uh, but I do think as a, you know, like the last 10 years of my career being command mass chief and, and being able to take a step back and observe, you know, the pipe hitters in, in the organization, uh, you know, I did have some kind of common observations that I noticed and I really saw traumatic brain injury aside. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's going to happen, you know, uh, but with the, the PTSD, uh, single guys, who don't, you know, they don't go home to a wife and kids. Uh, I saw it manifest itself more in that demographic, you know, through, you know, self-medicating or, you know, bad behavior in some way, shape or form more so than I did like guys who are married with kids, right? Because you come back from deployment and you go home shit, man. Now you have this whole other problem set you got to deal with, which is like your wife and kids and you don't have any time to dwell upon yourself. Now that, that can be a danger in and of itself. Right. And I think when you see, you know, married guys or married 
you know, dads or wives uh, committing suicide. Uh, that's probably because you, they haven't had the chance. They've never had the opportunity because of their, the role they're doing as a parent and as a SEAL to address their issues. Uh, you know, so I think, uh, but yeah, that's one of the things I did. No, it's not 100% across the board, but I, I did see a difference between single guys married guys and then married with kids and, and how things manifested themselves. But you gotta be really careful like for the married guys with kids and not to bottle it in, you know, it guys are terrible about it. Like women talk all the time, right? Like, you know, my wife and her sister will air all my dirty laundry in theirs and, and have conversations, but that works for them, right? Guys are terrible about that shit, you know? And I think, I think we've gotten better about it i think it's it's okay to like talk about man i'm fucked you know i'm fucked up or i feel fucked up or whatever else and and have and, and we have gotten better about it you know not clamming up and, and uh being reluctant to talk because that's that's dangerous because then you know it's a powder keg man you know it's gonna it's gonna go at some point but you uh, think that stigma is still there yeah, I think the stigma's gone, you know, but what the challenge is, everybody puts a degree on it, you know, like, or they, you can't, and I, I, re, I realized this as a, when I was a MC after seeing a few guys, like, go through some real issues, and it's like, well, you kind of go, well, fuck, they, you know, I know their deployment history, they didn't really do much or see much, you know, that why would it, why would it trigger this kind of reaction in them? Whereas this guy who was, you know, you know, knee deep in hand grenade pins with tendonitis in his elbow and, and, you know, hundreds of dead moos around him, just not even bat an eye at it. But this guy, you know, sees one dead body and he's exhibiting all these issues. You, you just can't, every individual's brain is wired differently and, and it's beyond their control or anybody's control. And so you can't like, there's not like this scale you know, like, oh, well, you saw this much shit or did this much, you know, then it's okay. It's just, you don't know how brains are wired, man, and how people are going to react. And it's a, it's a big gray unknown between people's ears. And, and like one guy, you know, great dude, but he was, he had some issues. And then he started self-medicating like, like a pro and he was, he was reliving stories that I know factually he wasn't, you know, he's halfway around the world when that incident happened, but it became like the self licking ice cream cone where, you know, he has some issues. He starts self-medicating and then because of the delusion with the self-medication, he's taking on everybody else's incidents and he's reliving them, even though he wasn't, he was half a world away, but they, but they were real in his head. So he self-medicates more and they become more real. And so that's, that's when I really realized like, okay, man, you can't, everybody's threshold for it is different. Everybody's brain is going to react differently. It's, you know, 8 billion people on planet earth and every fucking one of them is different. So how are you going to, you can't have a cookie cutter approach to, uh, mental health, man. Every single human being is going to react differently to different situations. But 
may not affect me in any way, shape or form. Somebody else is going to go high and right on, you know? And so you, you, you can't, there's no one size fits all for anything, man. And, and once we're, we're starting to realize that, you know, it doesn't, Hey man, you, you spent your life, you know, in this profession dealing with shit, friends dying, bad shit happens. You're getting your brain rattled more often than it should be. And you're, you have this cortisol level that's perpetually elevated. And then sometimes you're not, or the situation, the environment you're in, or just cause of lazy, you're not taking care of yourself the way you should be. All, all that stuff adds up and it's going to cause issues no matter who you are. And yeah, so it, it's just, it's uh you got to be empathetic. You can't put a, a threshold on anybody's tolerance for things. You know, it's everybody's going to react differently. And, uh, it, and, and you got to deal with that accordingly, but you, you need to have an ear there to, well, in the military, you need to be there to listen and talk to it and keep them self-medicating. When you get out, uh, there's m- much more uh, treatment options available. The psychedelics are fucking fantastic for it. You know, the efficacy of it's staggering. You know, it works. And it's worked for 50 freaking thousand years of humanity's existence, if not longer. You know, humans have been taking them in some way, shape, or form to, you know, square their cerebral housing away. Uh, and, and so it's, it's kind of cool to see that, that becoming uh, in the mainstream a little bit more for treatment, uh, you know, but there's other options too. But at the end of the day, uh, it's very hard not to be judgmental and it has to be a completely judgment-free zone because you don't know, again, you don't know what's going to, cause somebody to react negatively to uh, any situation, you know? Yeah. My threshold is going to be different than your threshold, but I can't apply my standard to you and you can't apply yours to me. You know, you just got to go, okay, you're dealing with some shit. I'm here for you. You want to talk, you can talk or I'll point you in the direction you need to go. And, uh, but you know, I empathize with you cause we're all, been in that environment in some way, shape or form, you know, can we talk about, uh, medications? Uh, the opioid epidemic is out of control now. Yeah. A lot of deaths coming from it. A lot of overdoses. Um, but it seems like when you go into a treatment or with pain or with anything, that's the automatic answer. Now you you need these pills. Uh, It drove me crazy. So, you know, our guys, they run hard, man. They work hard. They play hard. They're, 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 they're charging and they want to, the last thing you want to do is get out of the fight. Right. But you're going to get hurt. And so what happens is guys are deployment, deployment, you know, training, training and bam. Okay. I need shoulder surgery and they get shoulder surgery and they want to get back in the fight as quickly as possible. And modern medicine you know, has changed the dynamic to, as opposed to pain being a byproduct of whatever shit you're dealing with. Now it's something you need to treat. And so now pain's pain is a disease and we need to treat it. So, Hey buddy, here's this vial of opioids here. 
that you can take free of charge, you know, and you get to finish the whole thing. There's 30 tablets in there and it's for your pain. And so guys will be like, fuck yeah, man, I can get high. And, you know, and it's going to get me back into the fight faster. And they take this whole vial of Percocets and now they're heroin addict, you know? And I had this discussion with the doctor at work and I'm like, what the fuck, man? I go, why are you prescribing these guys so many pain meds? You know, like, why, why does it, like, I got my knee, I got a couple knee surgeries in the Navy and they gave me a shit ton of Percocet. Like, what the fuck is that about? I go, I only needed it for like the first day, you know, it hurt. And after that, just suck it up, right? Put some, rub some sand on it and call it good. And they're like, well, no, we have to treat pain as a disease now. We have to treat pain too. I'm like, okay, well, knock it off, man. Because every one of these guys, you know, they're hurting and they want to get back in the face. So they're going to they're gonna take the Percocet so they can go physical therapy harder and get back in quicker. But now they're hooked on something. And so they're either going to struggle getting off of that or they're going to find an alternative to self-medicate with. Because, I mean, it's, that shit's no joke, man. Like, I mean, it's fucking synthetic heroin, you know? And, you know, the heroin junkies I know, uh, like, what's heroin like? It's the greatest thing I've ever done, you know? Oh, okay. I did it once, and I'm like, this is awesome. I never want it to end. Okay, well, after the third time of shooting a needle in his vein, yeah, he's a heroin addict. And fighting, going to be fighting for the rest of his life, you know? And, and we're just giving a synthetic version of that and saying, hey, you're cleared hot to finish these 30 tablets. You know, just use it for pain. Well, okay, you do it a few times and you're like, oh, wow, I want to keep this up. And it's just, uh, it's sad. Like, you know, whatever happened, just like fucking deal with it, man. You know, doctors, hey, let them deal with the pain. You know, it, I mean, it might suck, but come up with something alternative than, you know, make that like the last option. You know, let them... Fuck, let them smoke weed, like with a high CBD count or something, you know? Oh, we can't have them do weed, but we can give them freaking, you know, synthetic heroin. Fucking nuts, man. It's like, it's it's so ass backwards. But I mean, the, the whole medical field is a joke, in my opinion. <laughs> so let, so let me ask you then, let me tie on to that. So the Veterans Administration, I, I've heard guys say that were uh, senior when they got out that, Military takes pretty good care of them. The VA takes pretty good care of the senior guys. It's the guys that are E5, E4, E6s, kind of in that yeah. that that 10-year rut where they start seeing the problems. So what do you think that – I don't know if what do you think the solution is, but what do you think that the VA or the military in general is doing to make this problem go away? Because they have to be aware of it by now. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, yeah, like I'm 100% disabled retired you know 27 years so the va treats me pretty pretty good i argue with my doctor all the time because his mindset is still 1960 or 1970 as opposed to you know like how many medical papers how many research papers have you read on this particular topic Whoa, none but you know it's just the way it is it's like they, they, they got they're narrow-minded and they're stuck in the past but they, they but they they mean well but they're so overwhelmed, right? I mean, you go to the, just like, you know, I, I'm still on like, my band was named intensive care, but I'm still on like every year and a half 
give or take, plus or minus six months. I'm in the ER for something I did that was stupid. And so every time I go to the ER at the VA, I mean, that whole complex is just overwhelmed with people. I mean, there's just thousands of people in there getting seen for various ailments from, you know, that you have an elder, an older demographic that has a myriad of health issues. You have, you know, guys like me who just do dumb shit. And then you have, they're just overwhelmed. Right. And, and, and there's just, they're trying to, you know, there's so many people in that system that I don't know how they manage it. And I don't know what the, the solution is quite frankly. I mean, they mean well, uh, but you know, they, but it's a, it's a huge government bureaucracy and in, in process and it's just extremely slow to change. Right. And so I don't know how you, how you change it, but I mean, the, at least the one in San Diego, man, it is like max capacity all the time. You know, that ER has got a ton of people in there all the time. And it's, you know, from the kid who, like you said, the E5, we did seven years to, you know, the, the Korean war vet who's, you know, on, on oxygen and got a million ailments, you know, and who are you going to prioritize? I'm going to prioritize the Korean war vet, you know, over the 28 year old E5, we didn't do a full tour, you know, career. And so it's, it's a challenge. Uh, but I think, uh, this is, and it's not just the VA, I mean, it's the entire healthcare system is designed to keep people sick because that's where the money is. You know, it, it's, it's not rocket science. Like human nutrition is not rocket science. You know, lifestyle changes aren't rocket science. It's really simple shit. And guess what? You know, I've been doing it for about, uh, I've been really regimented on my diet and activity and my and lifestyle choices for about, 17, 18 years now. I haven't been sick in that time frame. I got, I got COVID. It fucked me up for a day and then I was fine. You know, it's like, and, and that's the only thing I've had in the last 18 years. So like, but the, the healthcare system and the VA is part of that is designed to keep people, give them, not get to the root cause, not solve the problems. It's designed to give them medication, which is profitable. It's designed to do procedures, which is profitable. It's, it's, you know, the preventative side of it, uh, they just gloss over and it's, it's insane, man. Like, you know, it's, uh, it, it's a, it's a, it's a sham. It's a complete sham. I argue with my doctor all the fucking time at the VA because he, his, like, he makes just patently false statements that are taken as gospel by mainstream medicine. But I can pull up 50 studies, you know, randomly, random, randomized control tests that unequivocally prove X, Y, or Z. But he, he's still stuck on this dogma that is being pushed by big pharma and everything else. And it, it drives me absolutely up the wall. So I just don't go. I, I mean, I use a, I, I pay for my own healthcare on the side via a company called uh, Opt Health, which, you know, it's really pro first responder and veteran, but they think critically. I can have a discussion with my doctor and I can propose hypothesis on root causes of any medical issues I may or may have. And he will push back, but at the end of the day, we'll have a consensus on a way forward. And it 99 times out of 100 doesn't involve taking a prescription you know it's a 
lifestyle change or focus on this or that. And that's really refreshing because, you know, modern medicine, I mean, it's just, it's sad. Like my uncle's a doctor. I love him to death, but you know, we, we argue all the time about stuff and like he'll make points and I can pull up a dozen studies that prove that's not the case, but that just gets overlooked as tinfoil hat shit or, Oh, you know, you you can't discuss that. And it's just, it's infuriating. You know, I mean, look at how, look at the health of our, of our country, like how, what poor shape we're in and it, it snowballs, right? If you have, if you're overweight, that's going to lead to excess inflammation. That's going to lead to insulin resistance, which is going to lead to a whole slew of other issues that are completely preventable. But the answer is to give, you know, give this piece of medicine and then, or, or listen to some, you know, follow some fucked up food pyramid that is completely demonstrably uh, bullshit, complete bullshit. And I get passionate about this, man. It drives me freaking no, nuts. And, and, and I agree with you on certain points of it. I, I believe that there's good doctors out there, just like everything. There's yeah. good doctors out there. There's, there's good medicine out there. A lot of hospitals are based on a business and, and the business yeah. is, you know, it, you can't fault them to a certain extent because that's the way it goes. Right. The, 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 the only thing that I would like to see is uh, I would like to see because my doctor doesn't listen to me either. I, I tell him I would like to try this or I would like, you know, and, and, and it's the same way. I'm getting older. I get more checks and stuff now. Th- that's the only thing I would like to see changed. I'm not a doctor, you know, so I, I think I go in with with a a look of he's a doctor. He's the expert. <laughs> you know, I didn't go to medical sure. school, so. I, I, and yeah. I think that's the way a lot of people look at it. My whole concern is we have this we have this VA system that that I think is sometimes taken very much advantage of. Uh, like you said, it's Completely. packed. It's it, it's yeah. packed from open till close, and I think that maybe some of the stuff that's there shouldn't be there. Yeah, I agree with you there. I mean, I think you know the the biggest ailment you know, I think in the veteran community is hypochondria. I mean, I think, you know, I mean, seriously, man, there's people in there for no, every I... ache and pain. Like, oh, I get free healthcare. I'm going to take advantage of it. It's like, okay, well, A, you're a pussy because, you know, it's a hangnail. And this guy's got a bone sticking out of his femur, you know, his femur sticking out of his thigh. You know, he needs to get seen, you know, you know, you got a yeast infection, you know, I'm sorry, dude, go away. And they do take advantage of it, uh, certainly. I, and I think, uh, yeah, no, that 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 it, that is a huge problem. And like with modern, med- like with Western medicine, like if I get my leg blown off, if I get a gunshot wound, you know, if I am in an emergency situation, I want a Western doctor taking care of me, or I want I want an eighteen Delta medic. Even more importantly, I'd rather have them because I know they're going to keep me alive, and I know the next level of care that doctor is going to be kick ass at what they do. It's when it, it's talking about health and longevity is where they fall completely short because, you know, doctors, what, okay. A, you know, a doctor at the VA, he took one nutrition course, you know, for one semester in his career 30 years ago that 
you're fucking kidding me, man. Like to me, the, the root cause of 90% of disease is shitty nutrition and shitty lifestyle choices. And they don't want to address any of that or they're addressing it with completely debunked information. And, you know, like just look at a graph, right? Like you can just take this as just one example. If you look at a graph since in, in 1980, the American diet, you know, it came out with the food pyramid and animal fat, saturated fat and animal products consumption has gone on a steady decline. It's almost an exact opposite mirrored image of the rates of obesity, heart disease and cancer going in that same in the opposite direction, like almost perfect correlation to a decrease in animal foods, saturated fat and and an in, a, a market increase in cancer, heart disease, and obesity. Yet everybody knows, every doctor you talk to the VA goes, oh, you can't eat saturated fat. You shouldn't be having canola oil. You know, eat, and, and eat this low-fat diet and have it more plant-based. Okay, well, I'm not saying eating just meat and saturated fat is the, is the be-all, right. end-all. Right. But it is, you can say with 100% fucking certainty that is not causing heart disease cancer or obesity because if it was that rate wouldn't have gone up it would have gone down so you know it might it might not be the solution but it is it's provable it's not the cause otherwise it wouldn't have gone up right as it went down i mean that's that's just fact and they just gloss that over but yet you know all this disease and, and crap the overwhelming of the healthcare profession, whether it's the VA or just Medicare or whatever else, I mean, 88% of this country, 88% has metabolic, some kind of metabolic dysfunction, you know, obesity or close to it, uh, insulin resistance, heart disease, you know, this, this metabolic dysfunction and only 12% of the population doesn't have that. So whatever bullshit you're putting out about how to live your life is completely not working. So quit doing the same thing over and over again. They keep pushing it. You know? Oh yeah, we should all be vegans. No, no, not at all. There's no, there's no science that even proves that in any way, shape or form, you know? And, and it's, and that's why we have issues at the VA. We have a, just a, a completely unhealthy population and the veterans are even worse because you know not only are they stuck you know with this you know this belief and this blind faith in in uh powers that be in the medical profession to give them the right advice on it but then you have all the baggage that comes with doing a career in the military man exposed to just ridiculous amounts of toxins you've got your brain rattled more than you possibly count you know, you you sitting in a, you know, a fob somewhere eating just complete garbage food, you know, shitting in a plastic bag and burning it, you know, and, and like, that's your life. And, you know, so on top of it, you have that added, all that added good stuff. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, the VA is going to be overwhelmed until we fundamentally, you know, instead of using pills and procedures to solve problems we get back to the root causes of the issue and with an open mind and, and open discussion 
throw ideas, you know, talk about what's, what works and what doesn't and quit being so dogmatic on your views of what, you know, what the science says, you know, I mean, <laughs> that's what kills me. Like if you can't question science, it's not science. It's fucking religion, man. Period. You know, if I can't question it, it's religion. It's blind faith. I had no idea that I was going to open this can of worms whenever. Uh, oh, believe me, man. This one, I'm sorry. <laughs> I could, it drives me crazy, man. No, I, no, I, I completely get it. And I'm glad that you're, you're talking about stuff like this because I don't think it's talked about enough. Um, I think that it is, um, I think as a society, we have become a very quick fix. Put a bandaid on it, move along. Put a bandaid on it, move along. We don't oh ever look. Yeah, I mean, our attention span is as fast as you can swipe through an Instagram post, right? You know, it's like you hit a headline, and that's what you remember. I mean, like, and it, I mean, you saw it. We saw it in the military, right? Like, you know, we, whatever, something happens overseas. We do X, Y, or Z. The bad guys get that Twitter post out immediately, and that becomes the truth. That one, you know, whoever whoever's the first one to post something on Twitter or Instagram or whatever else those who are right yeah and nobody's gonna do the follow-up the concept. we don't have the attention span for it it's psychological warfare completely and we're losing big time you know what i what i bring up with that with the psychological warfare uh and and having such a short-term uh goal oriented all those kind of things you have thought very long term since you've gotten out um you've moved through a couple companies now you're a ceo of a company who, by the way, yeah. also has another SEAL working at the company in a very high position. Yeah. Tell me how you avoided that short-term look, because I think that's what a lot of people do, especially when they get out, especially when they transition. They're short-term, trying to figure out what they're going to do. You played it a very much a, a chess game and long-term. So let's talk about how you long-term and then what you're kind of doing now. Yeah, the... Uh, so... One, I got out because I wanted to be uncomfortable again, right? I could, I, I, like I said, I could have stayed in. There was some really cool jobs that I kind of wanted to take, but I just felt like, and as stupid as this sounds, like if I got out when I, I did, if I stayed in to thirty or, or thirty-two or you know however long I could have stayed in, uh, if I did the full tenure, I would have been institutionalized. But at twenty-seven years, I'm not. So, cause I, but I, cause I got out of my own terms and I wasn't forced out. And so, and I, I really wanted, to, I wanted to be a new guy again somewhere, but, uh, as, uh, like JT, the COO of the company, the other seal, uh, we're, we're sitting through a transition course and they're, they put, we're going through a resume class. I'm just like, Oh God. I'm like, we both looked at each other like, fuck this dude. Like, I'm not going to go work for anybody. Let's start our own business. And we did. And that worked because one, he was in the same boat. He got out on his own terms and wanted to be uncomfortable too and, and just see what's out there, right? And and then two, like neither he nor I, my identity is not tied to being a SEAL. It's part of who I am, no doubt about it. But like that's not a hundred percent of my life, right? Uh and I think people who struggle, their entire identity is tied up to being a Marine, a SEAL, a Green Beret, a Ranger. And they get out from that environment 
they have no fucking idea how to act or respond or there's there's so it, it's everything's so unfamiliar and they're they're so you know just regimented in their belief that that's exactly who they are that it, it they really struggle and i see i've seen it with a bunch of team guys man you know like they don't, they're lost without the seal teams and man i loved every second of the seal teams i mean it was the greatest thing ever but the day i stopped doing it okay see ya, i'm done you know like i'm not going back i'm not dwelling upon it it, it it's gone like that period of my chat that life that chapter in my life is over and i'm moving on and so that's how we both went into it and uh and when you, when you do that it's liberating now now everything's fair game and so we you know we had this consulting business and uh you know luckily at the guy's house i'm at right now is you know a guy we hit it off with who was at an event of ours and really successful guy came from humble means aligned values with us and we became really good friends the three of us and he just happened to have a company and he asked us to come consult for it and then ultimately we came on board and uh and i loved it it was fun and i loved working for him i still do and then uh with Scilabs, the opportunity you know the, the you know in my opinion ran it into the ground he quit and uh you know the same guy goes hey man you know there's no hope for it but if you two can turn it around good on you but okay fair enough man we'll take it we'll see what we can do and you know three years later we're still here so uh you know we just kind of looked at things uh from uh it just is a challenge a different you know like hey you know one our identities weren't tied to the seal teams and two it's like hey, here's cool opportunities but we got this all this experience and these lessons learned that worked really well things we did right things we screwed up royally and we've been observing this private sector thing for a while and similar environment just same leadership principles so let's see if we can apply it and now it's a challenge right you know can, can we turn this around we you know, we might fail but it's still a win in my book so absolutely uh, yeah what is it that people should really be looking to do get get down to the core of what they should do when they get out in order to make it a successful transition into that life you, you need to have some confidence in yourself and your ability, you know, even if you're, you did one deployment as a seal and then you got out or you did 30 years within the seal teams, regardless, you have experience that nobody else in the world has in, in, in leadership and dealing with ambiguous environments and challenging environments. And so, uh, you really need to have confidence in yourself. You, you, you have way more skills than you realize that are applicable in a much broader environment than you realize. You know, I see so many guys and gals get out and they try to find something semi aligned with what they did in the military. Right. Uh, I'm gonna get out and go work for the agency. I'm gonna go be a contractor. I'm gonna go do security or, you know, some of the support individuals, you know, uh, while I was a, a crypto tech in the Navy, I'm gonna go work for the NSA and do that. And that's fine if that's what you want to do, but you know, don't limit yourself to those easy answers. Everything is fair game. Like I said, you have experiences that nobody else in the world other than other veterans can relate to. 
You've seen great leadership. You've seen bad leadership. You've been in environments where guidance is really clear. You've been in environments where it's completely freaking ambiguous and moral decisions are very gray areas. You've, you've dealt with hardship that the bulk of the world doesn't understand. And so make sure you, so that should give you a, a confidence that those skills are applicable outside of the uniform in any environment. Yes, you got to navigate more personalities and more fragile personalities in the private sector, but the, but you figure that out, right? Because you've had to figure that out in, in your time in the, in the military, uh, how to, you know, military is a melting pot, right? And it's a meritocracy. And, and so you, you learn how to deal with personalities from all walks of life. You know, that's the same as the private sector. And so you, you, I just notice a lack of confidence in a lot of people that uh, that what they learned in the military, they don't think it's as applicable as it is to the private sector, but it's insanely applicable. That leadership is so lacking. And, you know, just a, even, like I said, a E5, a person who did one tour in the military has so much more leadership uh, experience you know, leading people themselves and seeing leaders and work, being a good follower and being good, a good leader. They have that experience hands-on in trying situations, that experience. You can't discount that and, and take it. And then again, everything's fair game. I mean, you went into the military not knowing how to shoot a rifle or march in formation or do, you know, maneuvers on the battlefield or in you know navy plotting navigation courses but you learned it and you learned it relatively quickly and then and then you learned it and then you you did that job and you got better and better and better and in a really short period of time you're you're a subject matter expert in these fields okay to take that same mindset to the private sector you know in, in really short order you're going to pick up whatever it is you're doing and everything's fair game look man like silicon valley was you know, not even on my radar. It was, you know, it was the last thing on earth, literally, I would want to be a part of. Yet here we are. And we're having fun and realizing that, okay, yeah, there's plenty of douchebags in this environment, but there's some really great people. And the lessons learned are just as from the teams are just as applicable here. You know, it's just the just a different environment, but it's the same basic fundamentals you need to have a mastery of to make things work. And uh, yeah, so everything's fair game. Have confidence in your ability and everything out there is fair game. Just don't limit yourself to, you know, what, you know, something familiar. Take, take a chance, be uncomfortable, be a new guy, learn, learn the whole new skill again. You'll learn, you'll pick it up really quick and you'll see, you know, you're, you're coming out of this environment with a work ethic, with leadership skills, and you're completely trainable. You know, that's what buds is. You get out of buds, it means you're trainable. That's it. You know, it, it is. I mean, that's uh, no. I, 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 I agree with you. You go through anything like that, it does show that you can uh, mend to any situation. So, in everything that we've talked about tonight, where can people go to find out more about you? Where can they find you on social media if you have anywhere to find? Is there websites? Is there anything like that for uh, talks or anything like that where they can look for you? Yeah, like, uh, well, uh, you know, LinkedIn, 
I'm on LinkedIn. There's only one Jason Tushin, I think, in the world that I know of. So, yeah, it's easy to find me on LinkedIn, uh, Instagram, but that's more surfing centric. Although, like, I'll, I'll post links to podcasts if I'm on them. And, uh, and, and sandwiches. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. The Zingerman's. Yeah. Things. Oh, so good, man. That's it. Yeah. Ann Arbor's uh, the jewel of Ann Arbor, Michigan. But, uh, yeah, the, uh, yeah, really LinkedIn. And then, uh, you know, obviously the Scilabs website, but that's more, that's some nerdery there. <laughs> so, but, uh, yeah, I'm not big. LinkedIn really is where I will spend time. Well, yeah. as everyone knows, you'll, you'll have your own page, uh, just like you did with the Johnny Walker episode. You'll have your own page. Um, I'm sure you're going to send me some more pictures. I already have some of you for that page. It'll have your links where people can find you. And then someday, are we going to get a book? Yeah, no, actually, it, well, yeah, actually, JT and I, my partner in crime here, yeah, we, we talked about it at some point, some lessons learned that we've had, you know, between uh, this environment and our previous one. But uh, really, yeah, I think it would be fun for me. It would be, the only book would be a cookbook. <laughs> That's a pretty cool yeah. idea. I've never heard anyone say that. So the, I, I think you got the market on it. So, cause I've yeah, never yeah, heard cool, anyone man. else mention it. So I think that'll be there pretty cool. Go. So anyway, that's where everyone can find you guys. Uh, I think that's going to be the conversation for tonight. Now, you know, you can always find me in a couple different places. You can find me on Instagram at the DTD podcast. You can find me on Facebook at the DTD podcast, and you can find me on YouTube where all these conversations are in video form. But the one-stop shop for you, it's dtdpodcast.net. That's where Jason's going to have his own episode page. It's going to have his pictures. It's going to have his links. It's going to have his bio. You can learn everything you want to know about him and for him. Just go to dtdpodcast.net. You can find everything that you want to know about this show. Don't forget to stop by our sponsor, Police Coffee, at policecoffee.com. It's an officer-owned business, and it's dedicated to crafting the finest coffees and blends, and they're shipped as soon as they're made to provide you with the freshest coffee available. Each batch is roasted fresh by people who know what it means to stay vigilant, and their specialty coffees do not waste one drop on flavor's concern. Their coffee's some of the best you'll find, but it also serves an important cause, and it's the one we talk about every week. 50% of their profits go towards helping family members of police officers who fell in the line of duty. Now... We have two new flavors out, a Sweet Pecan One Ranger and NYPD Brew. It's two new flavors, plus the pumpkin spice, plus the peppermint mocha that we had. It's got every flavor that you could possibly imagine. And when you go to the website, DJK10 will get you 10% off your order. Make sure you stop by them. Tell them we sent you, pleasecoffee.com. Now, what you can do to help out the show, you can like, you can subscribe, you can tell your friends about it. That's what helps us grow. Get us out there in front of everyone that you can. That's going to be the conversation for tonight. That's Jason. I'm DJ. This has been the show. We'll catch you guys on the next one. See you later. Hey.